Welcome to the No Wrong Answers podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. We're taking a week off from recording a panel discussion from our teachers. We'll be back next week with a new one. In the meantime, we wanted to play you a conversation I had a few weeks ago with the author of a book that's been getting a lot of attention in certain circles of the education world. Robin D'Angelo is a researcher and consultant who, for decades, has worked with organizations, including frequently schools and school districts, around the often thorny issues of social justice, diversity, and race. Through that work, she's built up a wealth of experience having uncomfortable conversations about race and has observed people of all racial backgrounds, ages, and professional specialties navigate that terrain. The book that came out of that experience is now out, and its title sums up D'Angelo's primary thesis. It's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to White People About Racism. You may, in fact, have heard the term white fragility in recent years as our national conversation about race has grown more fraught. Well, D'Angelo coined that term. Though her work is not solely about race in educational settings, her conclusions offer a lot to ponder, especially for white teachers who are thinking about how they can best serve their students of color. Here's my conversation with Robin D'Angelo. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, author of the book White Fragility, thank you for joining us on No Wrong Answers. You're so welcome. Uh, So I do want to start by defining some terms or how you define them in your book. White fragility um, is actually a term that heard more often in a larger cultural conversation that's happening right now. How do you define white fragility? Yeah, and it is a term that I coined just to capture the very familiar defensiveness that so often results when white people are challenged in any way on our worldviews, positions, or advantages. So you may have noticed that for many white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning will set us off. Generalizing about white people will also set us off, right? The kind of, how could you know anything about me just because I'm white? But it's not fragile at all in its impact. It's actually a really powerful form of everyday white racial control. So you challenge me on the way I see myself uh, racially. I'm going to push back on that because I I find that unbearable. And I need you to stop that. I'll do whatever it takes to have you back off. How did you, through your career, um, how did you come to your own definition or conceptualization of this idea of white fragility? What were the experiences that you had that made you see white fragility for yourself and, and, and coin the term and conceptualize it? I applied for a job I wasn't qualified for, but of course I got. As a diversity trainer, I thought, oh, how interesting. Doesn't everybody love workshops on topics like this? And I'm qualified to lead them because I'm such a a nice, good, open-minded person. And I really was in for the most profound learning of my life on every level. For a living, day in and day out, uh, I went into the workplace and tried to do these seminars with uh, overwhelmingly white employees, and the resistance and hostility was incredible. And day in and day out, year after year of that, I recognized that I had an an extraordinary experience, that most white people don't talk about racism, and they certainly don't talk about it for a living. And so I wanted to apply all that I had learned in that process uh, at a wider level. So I actually got my doctorate in multicultural education with a focus on white racial identity. And, and the question that drives my work is, what does it mean to be white in a society that says it doesn't really mean anything, and yet is profoundly separate and unequal by race 
and white people benefit from that separation and inequality. So you do have an education background. You you got a, yep. a degree in a curriculum and pedagogy. You got this master's degree, and you've been a diversity trainer. I would imagine, um, like you say so in your book, a lot of times your trainings involve schools, involve going into and dealing and and working with groups of teachers who work together, colleagues either at the same school or within a district. So I wonder what is what is it like going into a school for this type of training and and how might it be different than than in like maybe a corporate setting or other places in which you consult? So I am a former professor of education. I used to teach in a large teacher training program, so I've been involved in a teacher training for many, many years. And there are, of course, shared things for all white people in our society, but there are some specifics about being in education. The first one is that it's overwhelmingly white, upwards of 83 to 93% white, the teaching force in this country. It's actually getting more, not less white. And our schools are almost back to pre-Brown versus Board of Education levels of segregation. Most white teachers grew up in segregated neighborhoods, right? They grew up in overwhelmingly white neighborhoods. They went to overwhelmingly white schools. They had overwhelmingly white teachers. None of that gave us good information about how racism works. I mean, you really can get through graduate school and you can get through teacher education without really talking about racism. If you're in a progressive yeah, program, I did <laughs> yeah, right? I yeah. mean, think about that. Think about that. Like getting through teacher education without discussing racism. And, you know, if you're in a progressive program, you might have one required multicultural education class. Your faculty, which is also going to be overwhelmingly white from the same background, but a handful of that of those faculty members will have fought for a very long time to get a required course. They'll still be fighting their colleagues to keep that course. They'll also be fighting white students to keep the course. And it still doesn't mean you'll be talking about racism in the course, right? You might be just studying heroes and holidays and how to, you know, infuse them in February. You also have the orientation of a lot of teachers. And this is a generalization, but many white teachers had a really good experience in school. They love their teachers, and they want to be that teacher that, you know, children love. They have a very strong attachment to that kind of, I don't see color, I just see children, and as long as I love them, uh, they'll be fine. Uh, We don't understand the power of implicit bias, you know, at the same time that by every measure, every decision that's made in schools is disproportionate based on race, right? I'm going to assume your listeners understand the school-to-prison pipeline, and I don't think any individual teacher wants to contribute to it, but collectively, it's here. We have it. And another dynamic is teachers, unfortunately, might profess uh, to value lifelong learner learning, but we're not always lifelong learners ourselves. We can be a little bit of know-it-alls. And I used to teach in a program, a social work program, as well as teacher education, and not because I have a background in social work, but because of my background in these issues, I was hired in a school of social work. I want to point out, as an adjunct, because everywhere else, <laughs> most faculty regardless of the discipline, cannot engage with any nuance or complexity in issues of race. So they hire adjuncts who are, you know, not respected anywhere near as much to teach those courses. But because I taught in both education and social work, I noticed a really big difference between the overall orientation of the students. So students who went into social work 
You know, they say they had sometimes a missionary consciousness, right? I'm going to save and help the downtrodden, and that's problematic. But they did recognize that there are people who are marginalized in society. Teachers, unfortunately, tended to have that, I'll just love everybody, and it'll all work out. There wasn't a kind of general orientation that, that society is set up in a way that marginalizes some over others. So when you started a training with a group of teachers, I, I imagine there's probably not a typical training experience that you have, but if you could maybe recount for me a, a fairly representative uh, training on race you have with teachers, like, I mean, how might it go? What happens? What, what are the conversations that teachers have yeah. with each other? I actually write about one in particular in the book that I think is a really good example. So these were the equity teams, and, I, and I'm going to just have to say this now. Being on an equity team is, is meaningless. It doesn't mean you get it. I know many, many people who love to be on equity teams who are fairly oblivious. You're talking about like the, 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 the bodies that, that districts create to kind of like yes. address diversity and equity issues within their district or their school. Yeah. Yes. And, and people of color, you know, don't necessarily see, see white people on those equity teams as good, good support or good allies. Although many of the people who sign up for those things feel like, you know, uh, they're the choir. And I want to be really clear that there is no choir. Um, I'm not the choir, and I don't proceed as if any group of white people is the choir because it presumes our learning is finished, and then the focus is going to be about how to wake up other white people. And then that that's problematic. But I was um, asked to come in to give a workshop for a group of the district's equity team, so about I'd say there's about 100 people. All of them made up the different teams for the different schools. This was eight sessions in. They had been meeting once a month for eight months on a Saturday. And I came in and gave a talk on whiteness. And it was going fine. You know, people were having the table discussions and nodding along with me. Until, as often happens, somebody raised their hand, a white woman, and told a story that was really problematic racially. And I made the decision that, you know, we were there to learn about racism. So I pointed out as diplomatically as possible what was problematic about the story. And as usually happens, the whole session breaks down. And that person bursts into tears or erupts into umbrage. And then the room divides into who thinks I mistreated the person and who doesn't. And then that person says, forget it, I'm, I'm quitting. It's a kind of, oh, my goodness, I would never want to do anything racist. Don't you dare tell me I just did something racist. And, and this is one of the challenges. So so that that's kind of how it works within, with a group that thinks they're open. They're open until you actually point out somebody's specific yeah. example in the room itself. Yeah. Your, it's not just your definition. But I think it's, it's a broader definition of racism itself. And I think there's a lot of... Uh, of white people, and I, I probably would say that I used to kind of maybe fall into this bucket that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. with or, or would see your definition of racism as a technical definition of racism, right? That it's a, a structural <laughs> systemic problem. It's not necessarily um, how individuals feel. And you delineate racism from, say, prejudice or discrimination. And this idea that, um, in fact, people of color cannot be racist, only white people can be racist. And then when you call an individual white person out on their racist behavior, they take that very personal. Personally, you explain it in your book, but why do they take it so personally? Because what? I think the most brilliant adaptation of racism post-civil rights was to reduce it to this 
simplistic formula of good people versus bad people. I mean, racists are immoral. Uh, they they wear hoods. They march in the streets of Charlottesville. They say the N word, and so you you just basically suggested I was that, and that that is a question to my very moral character. And now I need to establish that I am not that. I'm good. I'm on the good side. So you, the implication in your book, and you say as much is that um, to get over this defensiveness, this fragility, white people essentially have to. Um, admit to themselves and come to the conclusion that it will be inevitable that they will commit or say something or do something at some point in the future that is racist. And at that point, how do they deal with it effectively? Yeah, and of operating from a racist worldview, which is more subtle, right? Uh, You know, why am I responding to this child's behavior in this way and this child's in that way, right? I mean, we're not generally conscious that we're responding that way, but we are, right? Why does this one, this child seem aggressive to me and this one seemed confident and assertive, right? And what does race have to do with those assessments? And then you add the, the good, bad binary on top of it, and we're going to be invested in not seeing those differences for what it suggests about our identities as good people. So I think if you start from the premise that you could not have avoided internalizing a racist worldview. You couldn't avoid developing some patterns that are racially problematic. You couldn't help act on those patterns, you know, in in certain moments. And that you probably are the least reliable person to determine how well you're doing, given that it's coming from you, not at you. It's uncomfortable, right? It's seductive not to see any of this. But when you start from the premise of its inevitability, it's actually incredibly transformative and liberating. Yeah, uh, we've already said it, but I mean, the vast majority of teachers in America right now are white. If I'm a white teacher teaching in a school um, that's made up mostly of children of color, what is my approach? What what, what should be my mindset to my job? Engage in dialogue with other teachers about racial dynamics. Get Eddie Moore's book called Eddie Moore and Allie Michael, The Guide for White Women Who Teach Black Boys. Uh, I've contributed a chapter to it. It's filled with wonderful information. Um, You have to understand that it's ongoing and lifelong and it's going to take some effort. Talk to parents, the parents of children in your schools. There's an example I often use when I'm talking to white teachers who take offense that parents of color don't trust them. So maybe you you come across this, right? A parent of, say, a black boy comes to the white teacher and says, I think you're being, I think you're discriminating against my son. And that white teacher just is so offended by that and so defensive and how, how dare they think that or they're playing the race card or, you know, any of that above. What I offer white teachers is understand that there is a deep, history of harm between parents of color and our schools. Schools have not done well by children of color and black and brown children in particular. I mean, who doesn't know that? And understand that and and affirm that. And rather than take offense, you know, ask, you know, how have I conveyed that? That's very important to me. Um, I want to know what you're seeing that I'm not seeing or Please let me know if there's anything I'm missing. It's such a different approach, and it will actually de-escalate the tension. On the flip side, if I'm a white teacher that works in a mostly white school, 
um, with a mostly mm. white staff. Um, does all this talk about white fragility not affect me? Oh, it absolutely affects you. And in that case, I would get Derman Bark's book, uh, What If All the Kids Are White? <laughs> See, my point is there's so many good resources out here uh, in this particular sociopolitical moment, and teachers really need to take that initiative. But you really are training the people that are going to control the institutions, right? Every single institution in our society is dominated by uh, white people and white men in particular. That is a fact. It just is a fact. And our sense that that is not a fact is delusional. Uh, I think I provide some statistics about that in the book. And so you're training that generation. They need to be equipped to engage with some criticality in this topic. But you need to start with yourself, right? I mean, teachers need to be able to engage with criticality. And if it's infused in your worldview, it will come through in your teaching. And one of the things that white teachers need to challenge is the idea that niceness is the answer, and that as long as I'm for social justice, um, I automatically do social justice. We're not, we don't automatically have the skills um, around these issues. These are so loaded and charged. We, we have to work at it. So niceness alone, my goodness, will not get racism on the table, right? It, it's active. It, it takes commitment. In what ways has our education system itself, uh, particularly in the way we teach American history, contributed to white fragility? Well, we have not been given the truth or the full story. Our history lessons emphasize and reinforce this idea of exceptionality. And I use the example of Jackie Robinson in the book, right? We hold up these individuals who we position as exceptional to their group. And inadvertently, right, we're also then saying the rest of them are not exceptional. We also uh, tell the story in ways that suggest that racism ended. You know, racism ended when Rosa Parks refused to sit on the, the bus. You know, she was just a tired washerwoman when, in fact, she was an activist, you know, who very strategically, backed by many other people, decided to, you know, sit down on the bus. Um, and certainly racism didn't end that day, right? Jackie Robinson could not have broken the color line himself. It wasn't up to him whether he played or didn't play. It was up to white people. So we have to give them models and examples of people who have worked very hard uh, to challenge racism and show them those efforts, techniques, right, and strategies rather than present these simple stories of special people who, you know, single-handedly ended uh, inequality. Yeah. I want to end by referencing the concept that you have in your book, racial stamina. A big part of this um, idea of defensiveness and white fragility is that um, white people do not have the racial stamina to have conversations um, about race, that um, when it's mentioned or if they have a behavior or, or thing of theirs that is pointed out, they um, become immediately defensive and shut down or, or turn away. Would you say in your 20 or so years of doing this, consulting uh, different groups, including teachers, um, that white people have, have gotten better um, at talking about race, that their racial stamina has increased, or has it gotten worse? Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Now, what I will say is we are in a um, political moment where that thin veneer of post-racialism has is, is been stripped off. So during the Obama years, it was actually really hard because people would just insist racism's over. We have a black president. I think we're pretty clear that racism didn't end 
upon. So that's Obama interesting. Presidency. So you actually think these conversations are easier now in a yes. Trump administration? Yes, because there's a one um, no more dog whistle. You know, I mean, it is clear as a bell, and I think people, white people, are shocked and a little bit desperate, and so there there is an openness. What I can tell you about younger people, because I often get asked this, you know, don't you think younger people are less racist? No, I don't. Um, one, I mean, how we know uh, how we're doing is by our outcomes, and our outcomes are not getting better. By me- many measurements, they're getting worse in terms of racial equity. And I, I have been working lately with large uh, tech companies, and most of the employees appear to be under 30, right? And they, they go to these sessions, and they are dumbfounded at how much pain um, their coworkers of color are in, how much tying up in knots their coworkers of color do in order to keep them comfortable, right, not to rattle them, um, how much they compromise and, and just endure the daily indignities and flights. They have no idea. And those white employees just have no idea. And they also just have no skills because they were raised to be colorblind. Right? I mean, we're not ever actually colorblind, but right, they were raised under this, like, let's not notice it. It doesn't matter. And so they're not noticing, and it does matter. So they continue to contribute to an environment that's very hostile and difficult for coworkers of color, but they have no capacity to engage in those conversations and no skills in lessening it. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, she is the uh, author of White Fragility, I'm coining that term as well. You may have heard it, but she's also been a consultant and trainer um, on racial and social justice issues for more than 20 years. Uh, Ms. D'Angelo, thank you so much for talking with No Wrong Answers. Oh, my pleasure. I hope there were no wrong answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we've learned there are some wrong answers sometimes. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Robin D'Angelo, author of the new book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard to Talk to People About Racism. A couple of announcements before we go. We want to remind you that we have a new website, NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. There you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, the Friday Cheat Sheet. Again, all you have to do is go to NoWrongAnswersPodcast.com. Also, for our listeners in the Kansas City area, No Wrong Answers is having a special happy hour Thursday, November 15th, starting at 5 p.m. at Beer Station. That's in Kansas City's Waldo neighborhood. Come, have a beer, talk to other No Wrong Answers listeners, and put aside the grading and lesson planning for a couple of hours. Again, that happy hour at Beer Station in Kansas City on Thursday, November 15th at 5 p.m. Until next time, kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>